Turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And as you do, uh, would you pray with me? Mark chapter 11. Lord, as we uh, were just singing, only you, Jesus, only you. Lord, that's really what we want. Deep in our hearts as believers, we want you. But so many times in life, Lord, we, get, we can get so uh, uh, distracted by all the things in life. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that as we focus in on you, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would do a work that only you can do that through the power of your spirit. And Lord, we ask that your, uh, your word would come to life this morning to us. We give you this time. We pray that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes you can't help but compare things to other things, right? Like you, what you're doing right now. You're comparing me to Pastor Eric. <laughs> have, you, have any of you seen one of these before? Yes. Uh, some, of you may, uh, some of you younger kids may not know what this is. This is a mobile phone from 1981. Yeah, 1981. In fact, the only place you can find one of these is in an antique store. Um, and the only thing you could do on it is actually just talk and have a conversation with somebody. That's, that's it, you know. Now compare that to uh, the mobile phone of today. Ah, uh, the iPhone, right? The, the mobile phone of today with GPS and... All the things that web browsers and, and uh, music streaming and, and apps of everything that you could think of, right? Good comparison. Now, uh, now, what about this next object? This is called an American taco. An American taco. It's not a Mexican taco. It's an American taco. You can get these at best you can get one uh, for 50 cents, right? On a good day, on a bad day, maybe $1.50. Now compare that to a real taco. This is a Mexican taco. Yeah, some, someone, knows, someone knows what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> yeah, Mexican taco. Nothing like them, especially when you get them in Mexico. Comparisons. Comparisons, comparing the old and the new, comparing good and better, comparing, comparisons. And this morning, I've, I've titled this message, Comparisons from the Back of a Donkey. You see, inside this chapter, chapter 11 of Mark, we're going to see our own comparisons. We're going to see Jesus compared to the crowd, we're going to see Jesus compared to the religious leaders, and we're going to see Jesus compared to religion. Now, I hope that as we look at these comparisons this morning that you're challenged, challenged to change, challenged to, to apply some things into our lives uh, this morning. 
Now, I love the Easter season. It's one of my favorite times of the season. And, and I, hope, uh, I hope that as we look at uh, this, this week, the week before Jesus gets crucified this morning, as we enter into this Easter week, I thought it would be fitting to, to look at the, the last week of Jesus' life. Now, did you know that there's more written on the last week of Jesus' life than any other major topic in Scripture? In the book of Mark, chapters 11 through 16 are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. If you look at the book of Matthew, two-fifths of the gospel of Matthew is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. One half of the Gospel of John is devoted to that final week. And in the Gospel of Luke, one third is devoted to that final week of Jesus' life. So you can sense the kind of importance that the Gospel writers placed on this Passion Week. The week that we are entering into today, Palm Sunday, this Passion Week. So so let's think about this for a second. Now, in all the four Gospels, there are 89 chapters uh, in those Gospels. 89 chapters. And of those 89 chapters, four of those chapters cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And 85 chapters cover the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. And 29 of those 85 chapters cover the last week of Jesus' life. So we begin the, the Passion Week with an event that is mentioned in all four Gospels, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And, uh, and as he rides into Jerusalem on, on, this, on this donkey, now the only other event that is mentioned in all four Gospels is the... the um, uh, feeding of the 5,000. I almost forgot about it. The feeding of the 5,000. And when something's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, it's important. We should take notice of it. You see, less than one week before Jesus was put to death, Jesus entered Jerusalem to the sound of the people, glorifying and praising his name. Jesus was about to do something he had never done before, something he had, he had repeatedly cautioned others to not do, and yet now he's going to let his followers openly proclaim him as Messiah. So would you read with me uh, in verse 1 of chapter, uh, chapter 11? And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage, and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on, on which on no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if, you, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the, in the street, and they, they untied it. 
And some of the bystanders were saying to them, Why, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it, and they spread their garments in the road. And others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields, And those who had went before and those who had followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. You see, Jesus is making his way into the outskirts of Jerusalem where he, spent, he, he sends these two disciples to go get this, this unridden donkey in the nearby village and to, to, to bring back to Jesus. Now, I wonder what these disciples were thinking, right? Jesus, you want us to do what? You, you want us to go where? You want us to just take someone's donkey? You want us to borrow Someone's donkey? I mean, think about it. What if someone just came into your yard and, and decided to take your chihuahua? Now, you probably would say, go ahead. <laughs> but it's kind of strange that someone would just come in and, t- and take a- an animal that's not theirs, yet, yet Jesus had told them to do this. And so these disciples are o- obedient, and they go, and, they, and they, uh, they begin to go find this donkey. And, the, and, this, and, and we read, and it says some of the bystanders questioned, what are you guys doing? And the d- two disciples told them, the Lord is in need of it, just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. Now this is a picture of the disciples' faith, simple faith. Sometimes God asks us, asks, asks us to do the simple things. Take out the trash and do the dishes. Call a friend. The question is, are we being faithful to some of those small things? His disciples were faithful to those small things. So this is the beginning of the triumphal entry of Jesus. In welcoming a king, it was customary for people to lay their garments uh, on the road as well as palm branches to signify the honor to that king, the submission to that king. As Jesus mounts this never-ridden colt, He was proclaiming his authority over all of creation as the crowd began to lay down their garments in front of him, declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is is he, Hosanna in the highest. Now, can I just say for the record that this donkey is the luckiest donkey in the world? To have on its back the Son of God fulfilling Old Testament prophecy while he is being led into Jerusalem on on this beast of burden. Now I did a little bit of donkey investigation this week. And uh, yeah, you'll be surprised at what I found. Um, First of all, did you know that donkeys are different than horses? 
Now, this is surprising to you, I know. Yes, one, a couple of you are like, really? Yeah, I found out in my study that, uh, that donkeys are different than horses. They're, they're, um, they carry two less chromosomes than, than horses. Donkeys have 62, and uh, horses have 64. If, you wanted, if you're taking notes, you should take, write that down. Donkeys are known for their long, floppy ears, and there's two reasons for that. They're, they're, uh, they keep them cool. They're like donkey radiators. And then the second reason is they, uh, they are said to hear better than their predecessor, the horse. They uh, live to be about 30 to 40 years, and uh, they're humble animals used for common purposes. Nothing glorious about a donkey. Yet this donkey, here in this story, is very significant because in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. For Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey would declare that to all that he is the Messiah. The fact that Jesus is on this young, unridden, untrained donkey to ride through the streets of of Jerusalem is a miracle in itself. If you know anything about donkeys, if you try to get on an unridden donkey in a crowded place where we're going to learn that Jesus is going through these streets and it's crowded, this, this is a miracle in itself. But why a donkey? Well, let's find out. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is where it's prophesied about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey many years before um, he does this. And it says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. You see, this verse tells it all, doesn't it? He says, lowly in riding on a donkey. Though the crowd wanted a, a Messiah that would rule as king to, to save them from the tyranny of, of Rome, Jesus is coming as a humble servant. Lowly he comes. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 and 12. He says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is Jesus showing us the way, telling us the way. You see, Jesus was, about to, was preparing to lay his life down for the sins of the world. The time had come for Jesus to be declared, be declared Messiah, and Jesus is now allowing the crowd to declare his rightful place. 
Hosanna in the highest, meaning save us now, Jesus, save us now. Although the crowd was proclaiming Jesus king, the Jews would soon turn on him. And within seven days, Jesus would be crucified because they didn't understand what kind of king he would be. They didn't understand what kind of king he would be. My first comparison this morning is this. Jesus comes as humble servant, but the crowd was wanting a conquering king. And when they didn't get the conquering king that they wanted, they, they turned on Jesus. Now something you need to know uh, at this time, it was, it was the week of Passover festival. History tells us that during the fa- festival week, approximately 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed, would be killed this week, the week that Jesus is now entering into. Now, if a lamb was shared between eight people, if you do the math, that's approximately two million people that are in and around Jerusalem at this time. A lot of people that have come in to travel into Jerusalem to be there for the festival week uh, of Passover. So you can understand that the city would have been full of travelers from all over. There would be crowds everywhere. Yet yet Jesus is riding through on this donkey. You see, every year the devout Jewish men, 20 years and up in age, would make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to bring their uh, sacrifice to the temple, to offer uh, offer it up on behalf of their family. Then once the lamb was sacrificed, the family would then eat the lamb and then they would, uh, that was sacrificed, and they, they would enjoy and celebrate uh, the Passover together. They would, they would enjoy and celebrate the goodness and grace of God, that their sins had been covered. And this festival would go on for seven days. Now, in the Jewish calendar, Palm Sunday today would have been, would be, and is, actually is today still, uh, the 10th day of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Not the car, but the month of the Jewish calendar. The month Nisan in the Jewish calendar is the 10th day, the 10th day of the month was the day when the Jewish families would select the lamb that they would then, on the 14th day of Nisan, sacrifice in, 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 uh, for Passover. Now, interesting that it's on the very day, that the 10th day of Nisan, that the Lamb of God is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself, as it were, to the nation as their humble king. And on the 14th day of Nisan, Christ would give his life as a ransom for many, fulfilling the Passover. Happening right there. So so interesting to understand this. 
Well, let's read on in, in, in Mark chapter 11. Look at verse 11. And he, he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Now, Jerusalem wasn't, it wasn't like the cities today in the United States where you could go and find a hotel anywhere and, and, and find a place to stay. No, Jerusalem was uh, filled with people at this time, and there wasn't many places to stay, so people would stay with other people. They would stay with families, and, and, uh, and Jesus at this time couldn't find a place to stay in Jerusalem, it seems. And so he is staying at Martha's house. It doesn't tell us that, but we understand that from reading through the other Gospels that, that, that he's, he's probably staying at Martha's house. Lazarus is, Lazarus is probably there. Lazarus was just raised from the dead just days before. They're all hanging out together, and, and Jesus has now come into Jerusalem riding on this donkey. He's been there all day kind of being with the people and, and, and being uh, uh, lifted up. And now he comes into the temple. He's, he, he walks into the temple and he, and he looks around. He takes an assessment of what's going on in the temple and he realizes that, okay, it's getting late. And so he decides to leave with the 12 and he goes back to Bethany. Now, Bethany, if you've ever been to Israel, I haven't been there, but I, 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 in, in studying this, I understand that Bethany is just right across the Kidron Valley. Okay, so uh, Israel, uh, um, Jerusalem sits on the hill, and, and you come out and through, uh, uh, down the Kidron Valley, and up, and Bethany sits in the, uh, across the way there. But what's interesting here is Jesus, he went into the temple, and he looks around, and then he leaves. He takes an assessment, and then he leaves. It's interesting. He doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything, just looks. Now let's look on in verse 12. And on the next day when, he, when they had departed from Bethany, he had become hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in, in leaf, he went to see if it perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples were listening. Now I'll come back to the story of the fig tree in a, in a few minutes, but uh, what's interesting is Jesus is now going, in, he, he's going into Jerusalem. He's coming back from his night stay at Bethany. He's coming back into Jerusalem, and, and he, as he, he comes in, he sees this, this fig tree, and he's, and he's hopeful for fruit. He's hungry. Now we see Jesus' humanity here. He, he's hungry. Usually we don't see Jesus hungry. He's usually uh, satisfied. But here he's hungry and he looks at this tree and there's promise. He sees the leaves, leaves on it. Now, this wasn't the season for figs. But if you know anything about fig trees, the figs are produced before the leaves. 
and, and they start to bud and they start to de- develop their, their, their figs prior to the leaves being produced. So if that tree was producing fruit, it would be evident when Jesus walked up on it. You can eat, a, 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 um, you can eat figs uh, before they're completely ripe. And so Jesus was coming up on this tree and he was, he was wondering if it was going to have fruit. And, and as he gets closer, it was evident that there was no fruit on this tree. And then he curses it. And look, look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who are buying and selling in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. This isn't our normal picture of Jesus, meek and mild, is it? This is Jesus bringing justice. This is Jesus declaring uh, bringing, bringing clarity to what the temple should be, should be used for. Which brings me to my second comparison this morning. Religion is concerned with the outward. But Jesus is concerned with the inward. And what Jesus saw in the temple inside was corruption. When Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem, the temple was, was, looked good on the outside. It showed promise. It, it looked great. Oh, it was so beautiful as he was coming across, across the Kidron Valley. I could imagine he's looking up at the temple and going, oh, Lord, your house, so beautiful. Yet it, and it showed promise of fruit. But just as Jesus saw the night before, it was spiritually dead on the inside. And Jesus always emphasizes the inward. He said, why are you thinking evil in your thoughts? Or from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Jesus was always more concerned with what was going on on the inside of a person than what was seen on the outside of a person. You see, the high priest authorized the buying and selling of uh, ritual items uh, necessary for the temple sacrifice uh, during the Passover, especially uh, sacrificial lambs and and birds. It it may seem okay on the outside to, to provide these for the people that are traveling in because not all of them would have a sacrifice to to present, and so they would need to get one, and so they would need to buy one. But what was happening was the priests and the religious leaders were making large amounts of money from the selling of these items. You see, they were making money off of God's God and making money off of God's people. The priests would assess the, the sacrifice. They would make sure that the sacrifice was sufficient. And so they would say, oh, hey, hey, come on over here. Let me, let me inspect your, your sacrifice. And they would, these travelers would bring in their lambs and, and, their, and their sacrifices from, from all over. 
And they would, they would, make, they would make sure that it was, it was good enough. And they would, the, the priest would, would look at it and say, oh, you know what? Mm, that's not going to work. Mm. This, this lamb is defective. I'm sorry. But um, we've got some over here. These are priests, uh, the priests have inspected them uh, ahead of time, and, and uh, they're ready for you to purchase. And, uh, but you know, they come with a high price. But hey, this is for the Lord. And they would take advantage of the people. They would, they would charge them all kinds of money so they would tell the people that their sacrifice wasn't good enough that they, they brought in and then they would need to purchase another. Causing the people to pay large amounts of money to, to give their sacrifice for the Passover. Also at the same time, there were money changers in the temple making money off the people as well. You see, all the Jewish men, 20 years and older, would have to pay a temple tax and that annual temple tax would have to be paid in Jewish coinage. So if people were traveling in from outside of, uh, of Jerusalem, they would take their money and they would have to change it into that Jewish coinage. And they were, giving, they were charging them large amounts of exchange rate, uh, causing the people to pay a lot more money than they should. And the religious leaders are getting rich. Which brings me to my third comparison. The vice of restrictions compared to the virtue of freedom. You see, religion is often about what you can't do, about rules, about regulations, about you, you have to do it this way, you have to do it that way. You can't do this. You can't do that. But Jesus was always about the virtue of freedom. Now, how many of you are, are parents in here? Okay. There's lots of parents. This is good. If we parented out of a place of only giving restrictions and rules to our kids, what would that produce? We would eventually have rebellious and frustrated kids who call us hypocrites. But if we parent out of teaching our kids to love virtue, to desire virtue, not that there's not consequence or boundaries, but if we teach them to love virtue, and we, we lead their hearts, oh, they will follow. They'll follow us. And this is what Jesus was doing. No wonder G everybody was following Jesus at this time. Because Jesus was beginning to, to teach them virtue, to desire and love virtue instead of a bunch of rules and regulations and things they had, and had to do. You see, religion brings bondage, but Jesus brings freedom. Let's look on in verse 17. And it says, And he began to teach and say to them, It is written, my house, it, it is not written, 
Is it not written, sorry, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of thieves, a robber's den. You see, the house of God is to be a place of worship, a place of prayer for everyone to come into, a place where we go to, to meet with God, to, to seek God. But, Je- but Jesus is saying, you have minimized it to a mere marketplace, a mall of America, so to speak, of cheap negotiation. You have placed a bunch of rules on the people of God. You've made it difficult for them to fellowship with me, to fellowship with God. When really the virtue is prayer, is communion with the Father, is is relationship with God for all the nations to enjoy. Yet that's not what was happening in the temple. Jesus was saying, you've made it a place of business instead of a place of worship, a place of frustration instead of a place of freedom. Look on with me in verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, and they, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the, the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, reminding, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed was with, is, has withered away. Now, now, do you think this was surprising to Jesus when, when he said, hey, Rabbi, uh, the tree that you, you cursed is, is withered up? He's like, well, what did you expect, Peter? <laughs> Like, I told it that you're not going to, it's not going to make it, and, and you didn't believe me? If you remember a few verses back, Jesus came to this fig tree, right? And it had no fruit on it. And Jesus cursed the fig tree saying, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Then the next day, while entering Jerusalem, they passed by this fig tree, and Jesus spoke again, uh, spoke to it again, and it was withered, it was withered away uh, and dying. And the words of Jesus came true overnight. And Peter was surprised. And Jesus, the Jesus condemning of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple were both symbolic acts. I want you to get this. This is important. These are both symbolic acts that, that illustrated the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel at this time and the impeding judgment that was coming upon them. You see, the fig tree was used a number of times in the Old Testament to refer to the nation of Israel. And I believe that Jesus was speaking about the condition of the nation of Israel at this moment. There was no fruit. Israel at this time was outwardly fruitless like the fig tree and inwardly corrupt like the situation in the temple. The nation of Israel was hypocritical. 
They had an outward display of religion. Oh, it looked good on the outside. The, the religious leaders, they would dress up and look so nice and look so pompous, but, but on the inside, they were corrupt. There was no real inward experience, no real life. There was no fruit being produced. Which brings me to my fourth comparison. Religion is fruitless. Jesus is fruitful. If you would turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 5. John chapter 15, verse 5. It says this. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and, and, they're gathered, and they gather them, uh, gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciple." You see, the nation of Israel was bearing no fruit, but it wasn't just the nation of Israel. This is for us as well. So examine your life this morning. Is there fruit in your life coming out? Is there fruit being produced inside? Or are you merely concerned with, with what people see on the outside? You see, Jesus is concerned with what's on the inside. He, he knows what's going, he knows what's being produced in you. What does he see when he looks at you? Does he see a fruitful tree or does he see a, a, a tree with no fruit? You know, now is the time to produce fruit. Now is the time to, to, to seek the Lord and, and allow him to, to produce that fruit in you. The question is, how do we produce fruit? How does a tree produce fruit? Let's think about that for a second. A tree, when it's planted, what, what does it do to produce fruit? Does it, does it concentrate? Does it concentrate to, to produce fruit? Does it go, does it just, oh, I need to pr produce fruit, come on. Bing, 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 and then fruit comes out? No, what does it do? It just, it's real simple, and, it, and it's not, it doesn't, doesn't take a lot of energy, it's just, it remains. You see, what it, when Jesus said, abide in me, he said, remain in me, that's what it means. Just remain, and what a tree does is it just remains in the soil. It just takes up the nutrients and just takes it in. And naturally, it produces fruit. Okay? So in a, in a Christian's life, how do we produce fruit? We remain in Jesus and we just hang in right there. We hang with Jesus. We, we spend time with him. We, we reflect on his word. We, we take it in and we chew on it. We remain in it. We just sit in it. We, we just lavish in in him 
And naturally, fruit will come. That's how, it's, that's how it works. Look with me at verse 22 of Mark. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whatever, whoever says to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Now this is right after the response that Peter gave about the fig tree. Peter says, Jesus, the tree that you, that you spoke of is withered away. And Jesus now, in his response to that, that from Peter, he says, have faith in God. And I think that's interesting, that he says, have faith in God. Why is he, why is he saying that? Because the nation of Israel had no faith. They had religion. They had ritual. They had, they had all the things that they were doing to make them feel good. But Jesus said, no, that, that's not what you need. What you need is you need to have faith. You need to have faith. Faith that rests in God. Faith that trusts in the power, in the goodness of God. Jesus is calling his disciples to believe, to have immovable faith, to have unwavering belief. One that does not doubt. Gee, because soon their faith, the faith of the disciples would be, would be tested just as Jesus was, would be arrested a few days later. Jesus would be arrested, he would be beaten, and he would be killed. Not a few days from this moment. Follow, following Jesus is about faith. It's about belief. Compared to these faithless religious leaders who, who had trust in their systems. If that's you this morning, find Jesus. Don't find, don't find uh, comfort in your systems, in your religion. Jesus says, believe in me. Have faith in me. Put your faith and trust in me. You see, these disciples would face a storm of tests in the days ahead. And Jesus is encouraging them to believe and not doubt. And if they would, the impossible will happen. Now, Jesus wasn't uh, talking about actually throwing mountains into the sea here. That's, he was using hyperbole to make a point. He was saying, the impossible can happen if you, if you line up your prayers with God's will. That doesn't mean if I pray for Pastor Eric to gain weight. Because sometimes I look at him and go, man, you, are, you need to gain weight, bro. That that would happen. If I prayed to, to the Lord, I said, Lord, you need to help Pastor Eric gain weight. And no, that would be a miracle. That's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. You see, real prayer comes out of our constant communion with God. 
Jesus had just left the temple. He had just declared the temple to be a house of prayer, right? Not a den of thieves or a robber's den, but a house of prayer for everyone to come into. And he's saying, let the house of, of God be a place where we have faith, where we come and we believe, and we trust in the Lord for the things that, that, uh, that he tells us in his word. When our prayers line up with the will of God, through intimate communion with him, oh man, watch out church. Great things will happen. Yet the nation of, of Israel at this time lacked faith. They lacked faith. As we close, as we prepare our hearts for Easter coming this weekend, let's apply the things that we've learned this morning. You know, we've, we've heard some really uh, strong comparisons. And these comparisons have confronted some of our own lives. And so let's ask ourselves some application questions as we close. Are you coming to Jesus on your own terms? Or are you coming to Jesus on his terms? You see, the crowd wanted a conquering king. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They were wanting a conquering king, but when, when it came down to it and Jesus wasn't what, what they were wanting, they turned on him. Is that you this morning? Are you coming to Jesus on your own terms? And saying, Jesus, this is, way, this is the God you have to be in my life. And if you don't do this, then, 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 then you're not going to be accepted anymore. Or are you coming to Jesus on his terms? It's important for us to know and answer that question. Do you live to impose restrictions and rules? Or do you truly walk in the freedom and grace of God? You see, this Christian life is not about doing. It's about being. It's about being in Christ, and the doing will come. But the being needs to be first. Is your life defined by faith and fruit? Is there fruit in your life? Or is your life filled with doubt and hypocrisy? Jesus is such the answer for all of us. And as we close this morning, Jesus is calling. He's calling you to him. He's knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying, come, come to me. Let me show you all that I am. Let me, let, let you, I want you to experience true life through Jesus. But it takes faith and trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close, Lord, and we have considered your triumphal entry this morning. As you've come and riding in on this, this lowly donkey, showing us the way, Lord, showing us that you're this, this, the suffering servant, the humble servant that comes to, to show us the way. Yet one day, 
you will come back. And you will be riding on a white horse and you will conquer all. You will be that conquering king. Oh Lord, we look forward to that. But until that day, Lord, may, may you be everything to us, Lord. May you sit on the throne of our hearts From this day forward, Lord, may we be yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.